Hey all, Michael here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode. Before we jump right into it, I just want to make a quick announcement. I'm sure you've noticed that we've talked about certain people being on the live stream or the live chat, and I want to make sure you know how to get to that if you're interested in being part of the show. So if you just go to pythonbytes.fm, up in the menu, there's a live stream link. Click on that. It'll take you over to our YouTube channel where you can subscribe and get notified about upcoming live streams. Most people just listen to the audio and that's fantastic, but it's really cool to be able to interact with some of the audience to get that broader perspective. So hopefully we can see you on the live stream recording sometime. Either way, so happy to have you here. Enjoy the show. Hello and welcome to Python Bytes, where we deliver Python news and headlines directly to your earbuds. This is episode 230, recorded April 21st, one day before Earth Day, I guess Earth Day Eve, Brian, 2021. And I'm Michael Kennedy. I'm Brian Arkin. Hi, and I'm Peter Kazarnov. Hey, Peter. Welcome to the show. So good to have you here. Yeah, thanks so much for having me. Uh, so I work as an instructor at Portland Community College, and I teach engineering. And I also uh, blog at Python for Undergrad Engineers, and I'm a book author, too. Uh, so if you're interested in like that NumPy, Jupyter uh, kind of matplotlib sort of stuff, uh, that's the kind of stuff that I'm into. Yeah, fantastic. You do like engineering work at the local university, right? Yeah, at the local community college. And that yeah. includes teaching uh, Python in our engineering programming class. Yeah, awesome. Well, you've spoken at the Python, Portland Python meetup. You've been on Talk Python to me. Now here on Python Bytes, you're making the rounds. <laughs> awesome. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. Yeah, you bet. Well, Brian, are you feeling calm today? You feeling yes. a little chill? Keep calm and program in Python, right? Right. Um, yeah. So th this was uh, suggested by Renz Demendal. That's something like that. Cool name. Uh, this is a, a site, but we've we've covered some of Vincent's stuff before. This is a site by Vincent uh, Wormerdam uh, called comcode.io. And what he's got is he's got a whole bunch of basically a whole bunch of tutorial videos on software topics. But what I and they're they're little tutorials to go with them. Um, I checked out the, there's a whole bunch of stuff. There's a PyTest, there's Rich Dataset and others. I was checking out Dataset this morning and I got kind of hooked and I watched like the entire series because <laughs> it took like 20 minutes or something like that to like watch all of them. Um, it was pretty quick. And uh, and I, I kind of like the minimalist, kind of the minimalist style. It's a, It seems to be a balance of like not just overview and not a deep dive, but somewhere in between. And uh, it's kind of a nice place to be um, for, and I was like kind of blown away at how much he did with dataset just really quickly. So the dataset one, I started with a CSV file with a bunch of data in it, uh, turned that into a SQLite database with a tool that he pip installed, um, used dataset to open that, and that opens a server on your own computer, and then you use that to explore the data. And then used a plugin to visualize the data with plots and charts and stuff, and then showed us how to like actually just use raw see see what the exploration is in raw SQL and see what that looks like, and then um, uh, and then take that take and but one of the the things is it's a it's like a little service so you could share that on your in your internal network with somebody else uh, to look at it, but. Um, the question of it's raw SQL should really let raw SQL be run. And he said, yeah, it's fine because uh, what dataset does is open up the uh, SQL database in a read only mode. So you can't write anything. So you're safe there. You can't delete anything or anything. 
Yeah, and this then, is interesting in that it's like really intended to be a hundred percent shared data, and like you said, it's read only. So little bobby yeah. tables won't be a problem. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> but and then um then there's a couple buttons that are like JSON or CSV, but they actually open up they just open up queries and you can use those uh as a, an API um into the data and you essentially have just with the data set have had have an API that you can use directly for some something else then. And then he's like, okay, well, if this is good enough, could you stick it out on the cloud? And apparently Dataset has a tool to do that. And you can just go ahead and create a Docker around it with a couple commands and stick it on uh, stick it on a cloud service. Um, I was just blown away at how much you can do with Dataset. And just watching somebody play with it is good. Uh, and like I said, it's not a complete Dataset tutorial. It's just a scratching the surface, a little bit more than scratching the surface, seeing what kicking the tires sort of video. So it's neat. Yeah, cool. It, yeah, it seems really neat. And there's a ton of small little tools and things you can go explore there. So yeah. yeah, nice, nice, nice. All right. Peter, what do you think about this? Well, I loved it. I think this is a great resource uh, for students too, because they're all free. And the one I really liked was the one on SymPy, which is doing symbolic math uh, with Python. And that's kind of a confusing topic, because there's like a difference between using the regular square root function that will give you a float as an output, compared to like the SymPy function, uh, that is a symbolic math representation of um, a square root. And um, I was I was hoping maybe it would be sort of like the ASMR videos, that there would be very calming music uh, <laughs> while you were doing it. Uh, but uh, there wasn't. Uh, the instruction, though, is really calming and, and really, really good. So I'd love to uh, share this with students. Yeah, very cool. Yeah. Very cool. Nice. All right, on to the next one. This one comes to us from... Brian Skin pointed out that here's a, a cool thing that I don't believe we've spoken about yet. So Brian, thank you for telling us about natural sort or nat sort. Have you guys heard of this one? No, I've never seen this before. So one of the things that can be frustrating is if you sort with you know something that is really strings, but it has some other meaning like version numbers. Like if I have a, a bunch of strings and they'll have version numbers and I say sort that, of course, it's going to go, you know, 2.0, then 12, then 100, you know, or maybe 100, then 12. Like it's the way it sorts will just be, I guess, lexicographically. It would be nice if I could just go to certain things and say, sort it. And it automatically kind of understood, oh, there's, there's separators and there's like meaning between these. And if they're numbers, you know, look at the number part and then sort based on the size of the number, not the, whether it starts with a one or a two, but if it's a two or a 10, right? And so that's what this simple little library does is it's simple natural sorting in Python. So one cool example, uh, this one actually might be interesting for you, for Peter, for your students, is if I had this a list of strings like quote, two feet, seven inches, one foot, five inches, five feet, two inches, and so on. If I sort it, it's just going to go one foot, 10 feet, two feet, two feet, seven feet, right? You know, the lexicographical version. But if you natural sort, it does exactly what humans would do. <laughs> One foot, five inches, two foot, seven inches, two foot, 11 inches, seven feet, six inches, and so on. So that's pretty cool, right? You can just go and basically use nat sorted instead of sorted, right? The sorted built in, uh, just nat sorted. And you could also import nat sorted as sorted if you wanted to go off the hook and just, you know, kind of globally replace that on a, a file there. 
So there's different things that you can do, you know, not just that one. You can sort versions, you can sort file paths, real numbers, like scientific numbers, you know, 1.72 times 10 to the 20th or whatever, that kind of stuff. Um, You do locale aware sorting, like basically case insensitive sorting. You can customize it, you can sort custom types, but then if you select a key out of the, like say a class or an object, a bunch of the um, instances of that class, then that key would then be naturally sorted as if as this thing does. So here's an example with versions, like version dash 1.9, version dash 2, version dash 1.11. And of course, it sorts the way humans would sort it, right? 1.9, 1.10, 1.11, then 2.0, and so on. That's pretty cool. You can get uh, sorted directories. Now, some of these come from not the same NAT sorted, but like, for example, there's an OS sorted. And there's, for the real numbers, there's an real sorted and so on. Um, there's ways to customize it. There's ways to build like custom sorters. Like I create an algorithm, which is like real or and locale and ignoring case and all of these things, right? Like throw them all together with like the or bitwise or operator and so on. Yeah, and I think that pretty much covers it, but it's it's pretty neat. Uh, it has like some cool debugging stuff. Um, ZDocs is asking if it uh, NAT sort handles non-ASCII Unicode. I think think so uh there is some talk about that actually working with bytes directly but i think it sorts on strings itself so i don't know why it would necessarily be different I mean, unless you try to treat the unicode as binary then that might be something else but yeah thanks for that mm-hmm. one other thing that's interesting just looking through here i'm like okay this is neat uh, kind of cool here's how you customize it Da-da-da. oh wait there's this thing called fast numbers M- most efficient the most efficient sorting can be done if you install the fast numbers package which apparently you know has nothing to do with this right but it's something that it uses and what fast numbers does is it allows you to have different behaviors for like float and int and stuff parsing strings into floats and integers and apparently it does it faster as well so for example instead of saying float of a string that is a a floating point number you can say fast float of that and of course you could go crazy and import as and wipe that out, right? Uh, but you can do things kind of like the dictionary.get. So you can say fast float, try to parse this, but instead of throwing a value error, whatever type of exception it is, you can say the default that I'm going to get if I can't parse it is zero for bad input or you know what number will I treat as not a number and all sorts of interesting stuff. So if you're doing parsing of numbers, fast numbers is kind of cool. Yeah, I got to check this out. I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> yeah, that's that's cool. So I think this is just... You know, that's not the main topic, uh, but I do think it's a, a neat one there. So anyway, yeah, people who do sorting of strings and stuff, they should check it out. And ZDOX is talking about like sorting um, like A umlaut over A. I don't know the name of the like little circle above a, a vowel, but there is the locale aware sorting. And so you can give it, um, you can give it like the Swedish locale. Uh, yeah. And I, I bet it does sort it okay, but I don't know for sure. I haven't. I haven't actually tested the Swedish locale, but I, you know, that's, it does seem to have like something that addresses that. Nice. Nice. Yeah. For me, the use case uh, is always the one versus zero one. So if I've got something that's 10 and something that's one, uh, the way that that automatically gets sorted. And then uh, I don't always like putting the zeros in front. Uh, so this seems really useful. Right. You don't have to left pad it type of thing. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, how about Mars, Peter? So how about Mars? 
So this is something I'm super excited about, uh, the Mars Perseverance rover. And uh, the rover uh, landed on Mars in February, but just a couple days uh, before this recording, on March 19th, uh, the Mars helicopter, uh, which is called Ingenuity, uh, lifted off for the first time. And so this was the first power-controlled flight on another planet, uh, which is so cool. Uh, and you can go to the NASA website and take a look at the Mars helicopter, uh, like lifting off for the first time. It's kind of got two counter-rotating rotors and a little solar panel uh, up at the top and a little antenna up at the top. Um, and the cool thing about this is that uh, some of the software uh, that's running the Mars helicopter um, is uh, built with Python. Uh, it's is. also totally open source. Um, so uh, on GitHub, uh, there's uh, this package for something called F prime, and NASA writes it F uh, apostrophe. And uh, F prime is the flight control software uh, that the Mars helicopter uses. Um, and if you look at the GitHub repo, you'll notice in the installation instructions uh, that uh, you have to make sure that you have Python 3 and pip installed uh, in order to uh, install F prime, the Mars helicopter software. Uh, so I just think that that's super, super neat. Uh, that uh, Python's being used as part of the uh, Mars mission and that uh, open source uh, to make this F prime uh, flight software uh, was used uh, in order to make this happen. Um, so Brian, you excited about space and, and the uh, Mars rover? <laughs> yeah, and also I, one of the things that happened with this is um, so GitHub put a bunch of uh, achievement awards on it, a whole bunch of people's GitHub accounts to anybody that contributed to a project that was used by F prime. Um, and, uh, and it may have been other packages too, but at the very least with this. And so a bunch of us got these, like, uh, you know, you contributed to the Mars helicopter Mars mission thing. So yeah, I, I felt cool being an Arctic code vault contributor. And now that's, that's <laughs> just out of this world, man. It's awesome. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I love in yeah. that post how they uh, showed like a screen capture for Marietta, one of the core devs, uh, and showed like her little shield. Uh, so I thought that that was awesome. Yeah, yeah, that's really cool. Yeah, um, Sam Morley also called that out that she got a, a badge for contributing to the helicopter. Yeah, and uh, apparently I I got one for contributing to PyTest, which is cool. So I didn't know PyTest was used by this, but that's neat. No kidding, so. you have one of these badges. Yeah, let me pull it up. Uh, oh my gosh. Oh, that is so awesome. Uh, that, that is super cool. Yeah, and while you're pulling it up, ZDoc says, super amazing, great work by NASA. Crazy that Python is considered stable enough to be used by them. I totally agree. Oh, where is it? There, there it is. Are. Oh my gosh, you have the badge. <laughs> oh, dude, I am yeah. so jealous. <laughs> it's pretty cool. Yeah, so. that's really cool. So one of the things I was going to uh, talk about is some extra, extra, extra stuff, but Two of those have to do a little bit with like what we're talking about now. So I'll, I'll mention them in the moment. So okay. um, Arem mentions on Twitter that um, uh, points out for us, there's this quote from Dustin Ingram who runs the IPI along with some other folks and says, Python packaging sucks and sort of quotes, but now it sucks on multiple planets, which is pretty awesome. And then it goes <laughs> off on this long 
like this, he goes for a long <laughs> thread of like how it's being used, what it's being used with. And I, I linked to this in the show notes. There's like a ton of stuff you can follow along there. And then also, um, a lot of work points to an article over here that talks about this badge that you were referring to, Brian, and the, the various people were getting it and the repositories that qualified for it. So Linux, F prime, C Python, Boto 3, Boto Core. See what else jumps out at me that's Python, a matplotlib, numpy, OpenCV, Python, um, Python date util, requests. Yeah, I saw Kenneth Wright saying how humble he was to see that. S3 transfer, which I use. I mean, the list is like, this is a list on GitHub, but this is actually like a list of many of the big hitters of Python. And it talks just about, well, I mean, it hints at how important Python is for this whole mission. It's awesome. Yeah, that's great. Cool. Yeah, yeah, absolutely, absolutely. <laughs> Super cool. All right. Um, I guess real quick before we move on to the next thing, just point out that this episode is brought to you by us. So if you want to support us, check out the things that we're doing, like check out the Talk Python training courses, check out Python uh, Brian's PyTest book and things like that. And uh, yeah, Anthony Lister gives you a little shout out there. Well done, Brian. <laughs> you're, bas- you're basically basically an astronaut. You know <laughs> what I mean? Uh, well, it's, and it's... I, I'm almost embarrassed though because I I like I contributed one test to a defect report, <laughs> a defect report and then wrote the test to to show the the defect that was my con- contribution to PyTest but yeah all right uh, that's it's all good. good it's all good cool all right take us back to Earth uh, well let's uh um so we there's a lot of cool projects uh, in Python. One of the cool projects is Fast API, and that's built on Pydantic. And Pydantic's used by itself for lots of stuff. And, and anyway, why am I talking about this? Well, one, it's cool, but we've talked about it before. But this topic was we've been following it anyway. But it, I gotta t- give a shout out to the the person's name that, that mentioned it to us. Somebody named Angry Dwarf said we should cover it, and. I just love that he had his his name and his email was Angry Dwarf. So cool. Thanks, Angry Dwarf. Uh, anyway, it's been a bit of an emotional roller coaster, but the punchline is Pydantic, Fast API, and Typer will work just fine in 310, and they'll work in 311, and they'll always work. They're going to work forever. Uh, I mean, I don't know that for sure, but that's my that's my guess. So why am I saying that people should calm down and it's going to be fine? Because people were freaking out last week. So uh, people were freaking out that maybe FastAPI and Pydantic weren't going to work in 310. Um, Including the creator of Pydantic, not just random people on the internet. Like, oh, really? People involved okay. in the projects. Yeah, yeah. Okay. They were like, this is this is going to be not good. Okay, uh, so this starts... Um, Okay, I'm, I'll dump, jump into a little bit of the details. Uh, there was a There's a PEP 563... That was titled Postponed Evaluation of Annotations. Um, and there was a little bit in there. And this w- this went into Python 3.7. And this said uh, in Python, th- in it, it went into 3.7, but there was a clause in there that said um, in Python 3.10, the functions and variable annotations will no longer be evaluated at definition time. They'll be lazy evaluated later um, and, or something like that. I didn't read it that closely, but that's the bit that that makes people scared about three ten and three ten is coming out like really pretty soon. So, um, does that mean that Pydantic and uh, and FastAPI they kind of rely on this and they're not are they not going to work in three ten? Um, and it turns out there was some corner cases. There was 
at least that's my understanding of it. Um, uh, Sebastian Ramirez, who did Fast API, he wrote, um, uh, there's been some incorrect conclusions that Fast API and Pydantic can't be used with 310. Let's be clear that up. The worst case scenario, which hasn't been decided, is that some corner cases would not work and require small refactors. So the and then he goes on to show the refactors. So the refactors really are just um, there uh, that if you define your types within a function, they can't you you won't be able to do that. You got to pull the types out of the function and put it uh, at a top level or something like that. And even if you're stressed about this, you can try it out by saying uh, in the code you have, you can uh, say from from Dunder Future import annotations. And that will show you what the future implementation is. So you can try it out and see if there's any problem. But then we got, um, and I don't have a link to this, but we had a, a, a notice from, uh, who is it from? I'm missing the, the name. Anyway, a notice just the other day that basically said they're not going to do it for 310. So basically they're putting the brakes on 563, the, the, the switch over in 310, uh, for 310. They're going to push that to 311 so that they all have time to figure out what to do about it and how to figure it out. So they got another year um, to figure out what's, or approximately. We, as users, I have another year to, to not worry about it. But um, <laughs> I, but the steering council, they know what they're doing. They're aware of this. They're aware of this issue. Um, they're aware of the, that everybody loves fast API and Pydantic and things that are built on that. So, um, there's going to be a solution and I think people should just trust the people involved that things are going to be okay. So anyway. Yeah. yeah. It's, there's a really, uh, what's the right word? Energetic, energetic, uh, conversation over on the Pydantic issue tracker and it just closed a little bit. Um, just a little bit, you know, last six days just recently closed, which is good, but it was basically important PEP 5.6.3 and 6.4.9 in the future of Pydantic. And I just had Sam and Samuel Colvin, who is the creator and maintainer of Pydantic on Talk Python. That episode should be out this week, actually. But on there, he talked about how some things looked very bad for how things worked, but then they've, they've talked it through and it looks like some of the changes are not going to be super significant. Basically, the problem was a lot of the type annotation evaluation is no longer concrete types, like a Python type. You can go to the and say, give me your type. What are you? It was converting those to strings so that they could be evaluated more quickly. But then in doing so, if I have a string called customer, that's very different than having the actual customer class that I can then use for type information. So then how does Pydantic go back and find the customer class like throughout all the things? What if there's two of them and so on? So uh, that was the concern and it sounds like it's things are looking better. So that's all good. So Brian, what's kind of the take home message of this? Um, well, one of the things, uh, I don't know. My take home <laughs> message is um, the people involved uh, like Samuel and Sebastian and the steering council, they're talking with each other. They know what that's going on. And occasionally stress happens um as to what's gonna you know i don't know how to fix this but they they're they're talking with it i'm gonna try as a as a bystander 
I'm not going to jump on the bandwagon and try to like one of the things that that came out was people. Some people started sending a bunch of emails and jumping on the thread saying, you have to fix this. You have to fix this. And that doesn't help. It, it just adds noise and adds work to the steering council. So making I think it's fine to make sure that it's addressed, but it's going to be addressed. And I don't know. I, I actually was one of the people because I, I use fast API. I use typer. And I was like. Uh, do I need to be worried about this? And, and especially somebody using it, just take a deep breath and realize that something as large as fast API or Pydantic is somebody's going to figure out how to fix it. Um, hopefully, um, I mean, it's possible that something might break. I mean, it is the dynamic language. I just don't, there's, there's enough people paying attention that, uh, I don't know, that's probably a long winded takeaway. It's probably, a, <laughs> it's like a repeat of what I just said, but anyway. <laughs> So if you're using Fast API right now, there's not a whole lot to be worried about. Nothing to be worried at all. Um, and if you are worried about it at all, um, you can use this uh, future import thing to try out your code to see what it'll be like in the change. And even if it, even if that breaks, they'll probably fix it by three eleven. Yeah, and then yeah, Nick Harvey threw out that you can test this from future Dunder Future right now. So that's cool. Yep, cool. Hi right, Brian. I tried tried to keep it down to just a couple of things, but then they started piling up in my extra section to where, I don't know, we wouldn't be getting through it in a reasonable amount of time. So welcome to another section of extra, 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 extra here all about it, but minus one extra because I already told you about the one with the, the package list and so on. All right, so let me take you through a couple of things. First, uh, here, did you know we're live streaming right now, by the way, on pythonbytes.fm. Hello. <laughs> uh, by them bytes.fm. I say that because there's a huge banner on the site I pulled up. We had something um, that would let us get some real-time analytics and sort of know where people are coming from. You know, advertisers some ask, sometimes ask for that. But what I've noticed is a lot of the new browsers, a lot of the good ones anyway, are very much blocking those things, right? So for example, Firefox automatically blocks our analytics anyway. Brave automatically blocks our analytics anyway. So we're not getting a lot of information back and we're getting i don't know my theory is about 40 percent of the traffic is being measured which gives you some stuff like what countries people are coming from and whatnot but i decided you know what we already have our ads like in our ads we do no tracking no retargeting no cookie setting and so on so why don't we just do that with our analytics like we don't how much do we really need that anyway we got downloads and so on so if you go over here and you click on the little shield we now have a perfect uh privacy score on python bytes oh very cool check this out Tracking content, none detected. No social media, no cross-site, no fingerprinters, no crypto miners, nothing. And same, by the way, for TalkPython training and TalkPython itself and so on. No known trackers to Firefox were detected on this page. Cool, huh? Yeah. I didn't know so, about that little badge thing. Yeah, you get it's like a security score. Like how much is blocked? How bad is it? Uh, and so on. But because so many of them are blocking them by default, I'm like, you know, like, let's just take this stuff off, right? It's somewhat useful, but not that useful. Related to that, have you heard of this flock federated learning of cohorts? Have either of you heard of this? <laughs> no, <laughs> no. This I'm is, worried this a bad is, joke is coming though. No, this is this is just Orwellian business right here. Like it, it has this eye looking at you. So there's an article on Ars Technica. Everybody hates flock. Google's tracking plan for Chrome ads. The EFF has a beautiful article that you really should read if you at all care about the future of the web, the future of tracking, the future of privacy called Google's flock is a terrible idea from the EFF. Wow. And, and they've got some 
pretty insane quotes in there. For example, one of them uh, from the EFF is Google's pitch to privacy advocates. I'll tell you what Flock is in just a second. But Google's pitch to privacy advocates is a world with Flock is that the world with Flock will be better than a world that we have today where data brokers and ad tech giants can track and profile with impunity. But that framing is based on a false premise that we have to choose between old tracking and new tracking. It's not either or. We can reinvent the world where we're not being tracked in every way and sliced and diced and and so on. And I totally concur with that statement. So yeah, check this thing out. This Google's flock is a terrible idea. The idea is instead of having third-party cookies, which so if I go to CNN.com, you know, we could try that. It probably won't show up here because I... um, have it blocked at like a higher level. So now nah, it's not showing up here how many things get blocked. But anyway, if you would go there, very likely they would set a cookie from say double click that you saw this ad, uh, or not this ad that you saw this article. Then you go over to, uh, I don't know, your dentist or, or your psychologist or whatever. And then they also can have this thing. So they actually were just reading this article basically, right? Like they can, they can profile what type of person you are very, very fine grained through these cookies. So Flock, you know, basically Google said they're going to get rid of these cookies because as I already pointed out, everyone's blocking these third-party cookies, Firefox, Brave, um, VPNs, and so on. So what do you do to keep the ad retargeting happy and the, like the super analysis of what everyone's doing happy? You come up with a new idea. The idea is your browser is going to use machine learning to put you into these cohorts. Like, are you um, a young female lesbian? Are you a divorcee? woman in her 40s like what group are you in and then every advertiser that you visit can basically receive like oh what what kind of person oh this is a divorcee who's coming even if they've never been to your site or anything right they they you sort of get your flock advertised to you your your um group it's not private data but it's pretty private right it's it's like this group it means a lot anyway i thought that this was a pretty big deal on the web and people should check it out so i put that out there um for, for you all to consider. What do you all think? I think tracking is a terrible idea and it's mean too. I, I don't have the link to it, but I was reading an article recently about how uh, somebody had, um, I don't know, they they uh, were expecting a baby. So they were looking up all sorts of baby stuff. And then they lost the baby with the miscarriage and they still got tracked for that. And so they, yeah. get, they get stuff. And then somebody, a couple of, of stores, figured out what their address was and figured out when the due date probably was and then they get like, they, they keep getting these things like your child's probably about four now. Uh, maybe they need a bike. Um, and they're Horrible. just, that's terrible. Yeah. Uh, so. Yeah. Yeah. But here's, here's part of the thing. Like all this is not so good, right? Like, I mean, they're both not good, but how do you clear your flock, right? Like I can hit command shift delete and clear my his, my cookies. How do you clear out your flock? Like you're just, no, you're just a divorcee. And it's recomputed every week. So like it, it goes like you could actually track like the stages of somebody's life, the different groups they've been. It's it's super bad news. So anyway, we don't I need think, this. We don't need it at all. I mean, we don't. Yeah, we, we don't need it at all. People did advertising in magazines and newspapers for a really long time with no tracking. Yep. Yep. And as I've already pointed out, so do we. Not in newspapers, <laughs> but nonetheless. <laughs> yeah. So anyway, the, people should check this out. That's worth pointing out. And then also kind of related to that. Uh, I recently started using NordVPN, and this is not an ad. I know they sponsor a lot of comp- podcasts, but this is not that. I just started using it. It's super cool. You can set this up to automatically, like when you log in, just join your VPN. Like I, I go to Seattle right now. Uh, it also, and it does all that cookie blocking 
and all those different kinds of things like automatically at the network level. So now, for example, I, it automatically does that when I turn on my iPhone, it's just always on the VPN. And if I fire up an app that doesn't allow ad blocking, that app is already blocking ads because the ads are blocked at the network level. So for example, I've used like Flipboard or like Apple News, like the ads are blocked. Beautiful. <clears throat> so anyway, uh, that's we're throwing out there. And yeah, that's that's all my extras, but uh, kind of a privacy intensive one, but I thought they'd all kind of go together well. So I ended up making that uh, a thing. And then Alexander uh, Simonov says, uh, I believe that a human classifier trackers will backfire. Yeah, I think there's a lot. Uh, I agree with you, Alexander. And I think there's a lot of negative effects. Like, for example, you can target and disadvantage marginalized groups. And Google actually talks about like when they detect that enough marginalized groups have been harmed, they'll recompute the flock. It's like... <laughs> enough? I, there, yes. I, yeah, exactly. It's, <laughs> it's really Orwellian. Uh, I, I'm not you know trying to be hyperbolic when I say that. It like, actually is. So um, people should check that out and just be aware. And uh, yeah, Peter, you want to uh, talk about your last item here, uh, Jupiter Book? Yeah, I'd love to talk about Jupiter Book. So there are a lot of static site generators uh, for Python as well as for other languages. So this is like a good party game. How many static site generators can you list? Uh, like Sphinx, Pelican, MKDocs. Do you have any other ones off the top of your head, Michael? Oh, I think probably is Ghost one. I think Ghost might be one. Um, like Hugo, uh, all yeah. of all of those. Uh, yeah. But I do a lot of my work in Jupyter Notebooks. And uh, when I'm working with students, a lot of our notes are in Jupyter Notebooks. And uh, this um, package called Jupyter-Book is a Python package that allows you to take Jupyter Notebooks and build static sites out of them. Um, and primarily, it's designed so oh, that you cool. can... yeah. You can build free online books uh, based on Jupyter Notebooks, uh, but also uh, Markdown files. Um, so I've got like a little you could book almost going. put like a little scientific website that has some like analysis and various things. You could kind of put that together as a series of notebooks and publish it, right? Yeah, yeah. And okay. you can even do it with interactivity too. So this is part of the executable books project. And kind of the idea is that you'll be able to uh, interact with things like plots if you make them with uh, Bokeh or Altair. Um, and the code output that you see in the Jupyter Notebook, that actually came from the code that was written in the Jupyter Notebook. Um, and I think that's pretty neat uh, like as well. Um, and on the um, docs, there's like this way that you can automatically deploy your book to GitHub pages for free, uh, which I think is really nice. And then uh, there's also a, um, a, a Git hook that, so that you can uh, hook into um, GitHub and then automatically every time that you push, uh, your book gets republished. Um, so every time you change that notebook and you push up to GitHub, now your book gets republished with all of your new content. Uh, and I think that that's really, really neat. It allows you to make like revisions and publish uh, super easily. Um, so the-, the That's yeah. cool. And yeah, you, could probably, you could probably put it on a specific branch, right? Yeah. So if you like, you make all your changes and then you're like ready to push out the next version of, of the book, you could like push to the main deploy branch or whatever. Yeah, yeah. I mean, in uh, your GitHub action, you could set whichever branch you want. 
is the one that kicks off uh, the action that builds uh, your book. Uh, one thing I'm kind of interested in is could we make a GitHub action that would kick off a build of the PDF of your book? And then you could have like a releases uh, page where it would be like the uh, PDF if people wanted to print it out or, you know, kind of had more of a hard copy of it. Um, I think that's pretty cool. And like the book gallery uh, that they have, they've got some awesome titles that they have listed, uh, like geographic data science with Python. That sounds interesting. Quantitative economics with Python. Uh, the UW uh, data visualization curriculum so from the University of Washington, how to use a lot of Python uh, plotting tools. Oh, yeah. This looks super like it came out of Jupiter, but it, it's a still legit website. It has a read the docs type of feel. Yeah, yeah, definitely. And up in the right-hand corner of these, you've got these uh, buttons that you could uh, like download a PDF or download the notebook. You can launch a Binder instance so that you could like run uh, that Jupyter notebook, um, and uh, you can have a default button that'll automatically take you to GitHub where that uh, notebook is hosted. Uh, so it's it's pretty slick, I think. Yeah, this is super cool. Brian, as a book author, what do you think? <laughs> well, it's one of the things that confused me when I was thinking about this. Is what is and it did with Jupyter, Jupyter notebook in the first place is. What does a book mean if it's not a book? Uh, there's, I mean, this this uh, idea of a book is is it's not a book anymore. It's a something else. I never I never really got it why Jupyter notebooks went to the. the I, I don't get get the tie in between book and book, but maybe somebody <laughs> can explain it to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, it's sort of blurring that like release line um, that it's officially version one of the book and version two of the book. If you do it every single push as a new version. Um, then it's sort of like just rolling like CI/CD book release, uh, which which I think is kind of neat. Um, but in my area, teaching engineering, um, textbook costs are huge. Uh, textbooks can cost hundreds of dollars for college students. So if there's a way that we can uh, make a lot of uh, open education resources books, uh, I think that that would be great uh, for college students. I really like the design of having like the table of contents on the left of the book. And then on the right, there's the, the contents of the individual page. Uh, so you can jump mm -hmm. to it. That's a really cool idea. I actually, w I was joking a little bit. I really think that it would be cool if maybe it already does this, but if there's a way to uh, turn one of these into a, um, into an ebook uh, or a PDF uh, from, from yeah. this. So. Where, where's the Kindle version of this? <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. Uh, and I mean, I'm not even joking. I think a, a lot of, a lot of these sorts of things, it'd be great to have, be able to throw onto a Kindle to be able to walk around and read. So. Yeah. Yeah. You can definitely output PDFs and LaTeX documents uh, with it, but I don't know about uh, like Kindle ebook uh, format. Uh, maybe somebody can like write that in and uh, give them a contribution. That would be cool. Yeah, 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 for sure. Sam Morley says having free interactive coding textbooks would be a real game changer for a lot of people, particularly somebody find, uh, figures out how to make this uh, portable to mobile devices. Yeah, for sure. All right, uh, a yeah. couple other comments uh, also from Sam. Uh, he, he says, "Congrats, Brian, about your." your badge. It, nice to know that NASA does test their software. I bet they test the heck out of that software. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Before you send it up, it's got to get tested. Maybe to a fault. I don't know, but it's got to get really, really tested. 
And then also just uh, while I'm in the comments, James Abel. Hey, James says, uh, and Michael will be presenting at the Python meetup tonight. Yeah, I didn't necessarily think to cover this because it's so close to, you know, it's like six hours from when I'll be presenting. But uh, yeah, I will be doing a, a fun memory deep dive sort of live coding type of thing over there at the Python meetup in San Francisco, you know, virtually because that's the world we live in. But yeah. Nice. Uh, very cool. Yeah. And then John Sheehan says, it's a short hop from LaTeX to EPUB with Pandoc. Uh, uh, yeah. Yeah, you may all be right there, right yeah. there. All right, well, I did my extra section already, Brian. You got anything else you want to do a quick shout out to? Yeah, speaking of virtual, uh, uh, Python, the PyCon ZA, uh, the South African PyCon is coming up. Um, I want to shout out to them. Um, they're, um, I, don't, I don't have a link to them up here, but um, it's a conference that's going to be on the 7th and 8th of October. Uh, it'll be entirely online. And uh, I was just curious because it sounds like I was curious about the whole virtualness. Uh, it's a little bit early in the morning uh, for us, but um, they are. So I had a little bit of an exchange, email exchange. They are going to be able to have uh, some pre-recorded, so you can pre-record your talk if you want to. So if you're afraid of doing it live in the middle of the night, um, don't worry about that, but they, you can submit anyway. And, uh, and they're, they're allowed, but they'd like to have the the author be live while it's playing, so they can answer questions and stuff, and that seems fair. Um, the second update is last week we covered dead dependency or dead dead dependency. I don't I don't know how to say that dead um, dependencies. I don't yeah. I don't know. <laughs> um, and uh, so one of the things we said was it's too bad that it doesn't cover it doesn't do pyproject.toml. And within a day, it was it was uh, supporting it. So. Um, the the there was an update the next very next day that uh, it supports uh, both flit and poetry with pyproject.toml and since it's doing pyproject.toml I, I imagine it'd do uh, setup tools as well uh, if you're doing pyproject.toml setup tools so that's so awesome well done folks about updating that straight away I mean isn't it amazing Brian we'll we'll talk about random things like this is cool but and then like the next day. Yeah, we get so like the dead dependencies folks fixed, you know, added by project.toml support. I talked about being is it oh, it needs a way to have indexes next episode. Oh, here they they heard us and they added indexing features well, and so on. Part of it's the podcast, and also part of it is uh, since I'm doing research for the podcast, I just reach out to people more often and say, I'm I, this is a cool project, but it doesn't do this. Is there plans to do that? And and you'll, I mean. Project owners love to hear back from people. And and uh, even if I wasn't, I think other people should do that more often. Don't just complain about something. Ask somebody if it's going to be supported or if you can help out. So Yeah, absolutely. Peter, anything you want to throw out there? Any little extras? People, tell people how they can find your book or something like that. Yeah, if you search for problem solving with Python uh, on Amazon, uh, or there's a free open education resources version online too. Um, and one little shout out I got is our community college is looking into how to integrate artificial intelligence into curriculum. So if anybody's in the Portland area that does AI stuff, reach out to me. Um, and I'd love to talk to you about how we can integrate AI into community colleges. Oh, yeah, that'd be really cool. Yeah, it's a super fun project. Awesome. It does sound fun. You all ready for a joke? This is a team effort here. Yeah. Um, I'm going to close the other tabs. There we go. So that's a little large. This is again one of these funny code comments. Uh, I, I guess I'll go last. Brian, you want to do uh, 
Well, let's have Peter go do the first one. So <laughs> these are these are from uh, comments that were found in real code, supposedly. Uh, and then they're just kind of funny. Peter, you want to do a first comment? Or All right. Our first, our first comment is, dear future me, please forgive me. I can't even begin to express how sorry I am. <laughs> <laughs> and here we go. That's great. All right, Brian, this is one that, um, I don't know, is here to take on the optimist. I don't know. What would you, I'm not sure how you put this, but it's uh, exception handling block. What do we got? Uh, okay. So yeah, uh, a try block with a catch, uh, SQL exception and a comment that says basically without saying too much, you're screwed royally and totally. <laughs> <laughs> and then, and then another catch exception, like a raw mm -hmm. exception says, if I thought you, if you thought you were screwed before, boy, have I got news for you. <laughs> that was my favorite. That was so good. <laughs> uh, and I'll just close it out with one of these ones where you just kind of have to accept life, I guess. And it says, this code is crap. This is crap code, but it's 3 a.m. and I, I need to get it working. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Oh, boy. <laughs> okay. I wanted to share one more. So, All right. Because um, I was I was talking with my, my coworkers the other day, and we were talking. Somebody med somebody actually mentioned how how hard uh, that we had a problem with cash invalidation, and it reminded me of that old joke of uh, there's <laughs> only two hard things in computer science: cash invalidation and naming things. Um, <laughs> and so I went to look it up, and then I found this uh, this other joke. Um, uh, there's two hard problems in computer science. We only have one joke, and it's not funny. <laughs> uh, oh, that's anyway. great. I so, love it. I love it. All right. Uh, we'll round it out with uh, Nick Harvey here. It says, exceptions while handling exceptions are just the best. Indeed, they are. <laughs> yes. <laughs> Indeed, they are. All right. Well, Brian, it's great to chat with you and talk by on things as always. Good to talk and, to you. Yeah. And Peter, thanks for joining us this time. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Great to have you on the show. Bye, everyone. Bye.